Hey there, thank you so much for being with us today for a special joint podcast and videocast with our friends from Headline Books. It's Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a meeting planner or your platform speaker, in-person events are back on in 2022 and you can find one another at speakermatch.com. At Zoom Into Books, we often talk to New York Times bestselling authors and independent authors. Uh, and today we talk to not only authors, but, but creatives about how you put a creative piece together, how you take it uh, from an idea in your head to a finished concept. And Eric Jensen and Jessica Blank are creators who've done that at the highest level. They've written books for major publishers. They've uh, had documentary theater produced. They've acted in, in television and film. And their latest project is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's Coal Country. And it uh, is a documentary play that is set in my home state of West Virginia. Eric and Jessica join me now uh, from their home in New York City on Zoom into books. Guys, thank you for being here. Eric, I want to start with you. Um, when you were a little kid, was this your dream to be a creator that that does this sort of thing? And and did you ever see yourself? Did you ever visualize as a child that someday you would be working at these levels, doing off Broadway theater and and major publications and being on television in the movies? Uh, you know, I I, I got to say that I kind of did. Uh, you know, my my first exposure to. Uh, to uh, 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 there was a film that I saw. I saw, I believe it was Paul Mazursky directed something called Next Stop Greenwich Village. And it was all about this group of artists in New York City. Uh, Christopher Walken was in it, a young Natalie Wood was in it. And um, I, I just saw this this uh, cadre of actors bouncing around the the West Village. Of course, the piece ends tragically as all, as all those, uh, you know, mid to late 60s films did. Um, but, you know, I, I did see it. I put on plays with my friends in the backyard and, and would write things for people. And, you know, I, had, I, I, I was very fortunate to fall in with a, a high school theater teacher named Denny Swanson, uh, who uh, had a great theater program. So I was doing a, a lot of stuff uh, with him, a lot of Ionesco and sort of uh, Tom Stoppard and stuff like that. But you so. didn't grow up in a context where one just went and became an actor in New York. Yeah, no, you I, told me you're a small town guy, right? Yeah. So I, I was playing football, how does this happen to you? Yeah, well, every other kid, well, I was kind of thin, so I was breakable. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, you know, every other kid was playing football or baseball. Uh, you know, I played a little hockey growing up, but, but you know, northern Minnesota, small town of about 9,000 people. Um, you know, we were just fortunate to have a very strong uh, community theater, not uh, not unlike the the theater up in up in Beck down in Beckley, and um, you know, I, did I imagine doing it at this level? Certainly not. My life has been uh, uh, and career has been uh, just every day is a surprise of the people I get to work with and the the level that I get to work at. So you know, but the work ethic is the same. It's just as just as hard to make a bad play as it is to make a good one. The husband and wife team with Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Jessica, what about you? You're a Connecticut girl. You're a little closer to the bright lights of the big city. But as a kid, did, did the bug hit you that I want to create things? 
Uh, I think pretty early. I grew up in a creative family um, in Connecticut and just outside Washington, D.C. Um, and neither of my parents are professional artists, but both of them are artists as people, right? They're highly creative people, and um, the arts were always valued in my house. Um, the other thing that was also highly valued in my house was a sense of responsibility and dedication to making the world a better place and being of service to others, right? My dad was an army psychiatrist in Vietnam in 1965 and came home and was part of a group of Vietnam vet psychiatrists that got PTSD into the DSM and then ran the vet center's counseling program for a really long time. So, you know, I was really raised around people who had an ethic about helping and being of service. So to me, my creative impulse and my impulse to be of service have always been married to each other from a very young age. So wait a minute. So your dad was partly responsible for making PTSD a thing that people that it now is widely known. It's it's a, almost amazing to think that in the Vietnam era that, that that was not a thing that was talked about. People called it shell shock. And or, it, combat or combat fatigue. And it was a very radical act for actually some of these Vietnam vets to get together. They, they called them rap groups. They got together and talked about the fact that they were having a hard time. And there were some psychiatrists around who were able to identify like this is actually a phenomenon. And it was a um, not without controversy, the process of getting PTSD into the DSM and officially recognized um, because I think you know, people don't, there are, there are people who don't want to admit that war is hard <laughs> and has an impact on people. Right. And so that was a conversation that needed to happen. I'm really proud that my dad was a part of it. Eric Jensen and Jessica Blank, the creative team behind coal country that is uh, gosh, gotten incredible accolades from everybody from New York times, to the Hollywood reporter. It just wrapped up its run at the Cherry Lane theater in New York city in Eric's beloved Greenwich Village, and I had an opportunity to see it there. Now it's coming to my home state in West Virginia. Uh, they're bringing the, the whole shebang down on Monday, May 9th, the cast, the crew. Um, and we want to talk about coal country. But Erica, I have to ask both of you, and we'll start with you. You have done some pretty high profile television stuff and some film stuff. And yet you do an awful lot behind the scenes. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think that for a lot of people who are watching right now, they think, gosh, I want to be, you know, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actress because that's what everybody sees up front. But for you, your career path has taken a little bit of a different term where you do both. Is there a bigger charge to do one or the other? Well, my grandfather was a mechanic and he was always talking about conduits. You know, this is the tube that goes to this and this is the tube that goes to that. It just depends on what part of the engine you want to be, really. You know, when I'm when I'm acting, I feel like I'm a conduit for another writer's words and there's something cool and spontaneous about it. And I bring what I can to the table um, when I'm writing or directing, um, you know, it's more about the ensemble and more about the, um, more about, you know, creating a space for people to do their work in a safe environment so they can take risks. Um, I'm happy to be part of somebody else's conspiracy, but I'm also happy to start my own. <laughs> um, and, and there is a difference. I mean, but I get to work with great people and learn from them. I got to work on Mindhunter. I got to work on Walking Dead. I got to do Mr. Robot and all of the people who are showrunners for those 
those shows, not only am I getting uh, the wonderful opportunity to act for them and create characters for them, I'm also learning what to do from them when I'm on the other side of the table. I think Jessica's had that experience as well. Yeah, I just I saw some uh, some big New Jersey hair in one of your publicity photos. <laughs> uh, I'm digging that. I'm digging. So is it is it more fun for you to do the behind the scenes and to be the puppet master, or is it more fun for you to show up on the X and and give your lines? Oh, she loves telling people what to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's right. I I love both. I started as an actor. Acting is the foundation of everything I do as a creator, right? As a writer, as a filmmaker, I think in terms of character and I think in terms of the principles of story that I learned from being an actor. Um, and I love to go and play in somebody else's sandbox when I get hired to do it. Um, but Eric is right. I really do love telling people what to do. <laughs> I like being the boss. I like being the engine of a project, right? And actually lifting it from the ground up and making jobs for other people and creating a container where people can come together to collaborate, right? So. Um, so my my workflow does tend a little more in that direction these days than Eric. I also just have to say, I'm I'm a solid actor, but my husband is a genius. Stop. So so he he gets to play in other people's sandboxes a lot, which is nice. Yeah, we had a love fest happening here on yeah. the other side of the camera. I like that. So Eric, being an actor and then also being a creator, do you think it makes you a better uh, director? Of, of people since you kind of know how that whole end of it works? Well, I certainly feel like it makes me a better writer. Um, I've been working recently with, uh, we've been working recently with Ed Burns, who created The Wire. Um, uh, sure. On a pro Co-created co The Wire with David Simon. And, um, uh, and with this project that we're working on with him, we actually want to bring a film industry to West Virginia. That's one of our goals with it. Um, but, you know, I had a friend read the script the other day who's a really good writer. He has had a bunch of hit shows and stuff like that. He's like, how do you make your characters so distinct? And I mean, like, this guy's a sh major showrunner. What's he asking me that for? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, they each, I can feel each of their voices. And I was like, oh, you know, I think that has, I think that's related to the acting thing. I think that's related to being able to deeply embed yourself in the psychology of a character. So I certainly think the two things feed each other. Um, you know, I think every writer should take an acting class and every actor should give a, give a, a, a shout out to themselves and try writing something a little bit. You know, I mean, Jessica actually teaches a, a class like that at Juilliard. Maybe she can like sort of talk more about that. I do. I teach in the graduate drama department department at Juilliard, I teach the MFA actors how to write. So I teach a class called Story where they're all working on their own project for the first time. And I feel like whether I, I do have some students that will also wind up being professional writers as well as actors, but not all of them will. And that's fine. But I, I really believe very strongly that every actor should know how to make a story from scratch and not feel like that's some mysterious thing that other people know how to do and then they have to be invited into like we're all dealing in story here right like we're all craftspeople of story and i think that there shouldn't be a separation between actors and writers about that hey guys what's the the biggest misconception for those of us that are, are consumers of the stuff that you create of of plays and theater and television uh, uh, and books well, what's the biggest misconception from us uh, that, that maybe happens behind the scenes that we don't know. 
I think there's a misconception. I mean, look, you know, one of the things we've done with coal country is, you know, we're we're people from New York going to West Virginia, and immediately the pe people were concerned about misconceptions um, of West Virginia because they'd been burned by the media so many times. Um, and, you know, after seeing the play, uh, they're, they're relieved that that's not happening in this case. But the biggest misconception, I think, about uh, actors, artists, and writers, and while this is true in some cases, most actors, writers, artists, directors that I know are not the least bit self-involved. They're really concerned about uh, creating an environment and a community where, you know, uh, where we can all create something uh, as an ensemble together. And anything they can do to further that, that uh, they'll 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 you know give life and limb to do that. Um, I think there's a I think because of some of the stuff that's out there now with you know famous actors being in trials together and and you know people uh, you know misbehaving uh, at that's at, ten uh, minutes down the street from where I am right now. Yeah, yeah, I see I the know, satellite yeah. trucks all the time. Yeah, well, and people, you know, behaving poorly at the Oscars and stuff like that. I, I just think that there's, I think there's this massive misconception that that's everybody, and it's not. 95% of the people that I work with are not self-involved. They're not selfish. They're not in it for the money. They're in it for the love, you know, so, you know. Yeah, well, and to piggyback on that, I think because as, you know, general population, we see TV shows, we see movies, we maybe sometimes see plays, and we have this sort of magical experience, if, if the work is good, of this finished product, right? And we get entertained by this thing. Um, I think there is a common misconception or just uh, underestimation of the amount of work that goes into that, right? Like, w this is, it's a job. And thousands of people are employed on those movies. Incredible craftspeople who are often invisible right like it takes so many crew members to make a movie to make a television show and and you know i think we see the glossy part we see the misbehavior at the oscars or the nice dresses at the oscars right and we just think oh this is this magical fancy thing but for you know the vast majority of the people who are making the work it's a real job i mean people work really hard so Since shout out to creator. all those crew members out there that's right since you're a creator um and I guess I could ask both of you this question. When you go to a play or you watch a TV show or a movie, are you able to take yourself out of, oh, why did they use this camera angle? Oh, this dialogue is clunky. Uh, to not critique it and be swept away by a story. And if the answer is yes, sometimes it happens. I'd love to know the last thing you saw that swept you away with the story. Eric? You want to uh, go first? Yeah, I'll go first. I mean, you know, it's after we directed our first movie, I had nothing but but love for every filmmaker who's tried and failed to make a good movie or or tried and succeeded in making a good movie or or just an okay movie. Um, you know, uh it it does I do not have the experience that your average audience goer has anymore. I'm always looking at um, what inspires me about the filmmaker, uh, a way that they're doing something. But I'll tell you, the last movie that swept me away, uh, really, in terms of its vision and its scope, was, was Dune. I mean, it was such a complete experience for me. Um, I also watched um, 
the Coen Brothers movie about the guy in the village who was becoming a oh. musician, uh, uh, Lou Allen Davis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Davis. Inside Lou Allen Davis. In that movie, I felt that movie so much, I had to turn it off three times because I was so uncomfortable and concerned for him. But you know, I finally <laughs> powered my way through. Um, but you know, those kinds of movies by by brilliant geniuses who really know how to weave a story that uh, that's seamless. Um, I don't think too much about filmmaking when I'm watching those. I'm just having an experience. What about you, Jessica? If you go to a play, uh, for example, do, can you critique that? play do you are you able to be taken away by the story and the scope of what you see yeah i would say it takes a lot for me to stop looking at the mechanics of it but i will also say that when i'm looking at the mechanics of how storytelling works it's not always critique right it's like i there's pleasure in looking at like oh they pulled off that shot that's interesting or that was a strange choice or like look at what that actor is doing right so i'm not losing myself in the same way but i'm learning from everything i watch no matter how much i like it and then sometimes there is something that shows up at such a high level that like i stop looking at or I lose some awareness of like how it's made. I mean, it probably the most recent experience I've had of that was not a play, but the I just saw the um, premiere of David Simon and George Pelicanos's new miniseries, uh, We Own This City for HBO. And, you know, David's work does that for me regularly. It's just he's such a master. Um, so I definitely was able to lose myself in that. Yeah, if I'm at a bad play or a play that's difficult oh, or having a hard time, I I I, I sometimes leave. For <laughs> You're out. The sec I just I'm or out. I or I check out or you know there's an impulse in me sometimes. This is why I, I never took acid and went to a play. There's an impulse in me sometimes to to stand up and say, "What are you doing?" Or to help. You <laughs> just be try simple. To help. You know, right. so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sounding judgmental or whatever, um, you know, and those days are, are of being, being, being that kind of a deadhead are long gone. Um, but you know, it, it's, um, it's, uh, I all, the older I get, the simpler I realize it is. And so I try to embrace that and, you know, the less judgmental I get to, you know, like I said, it's just as hard to make it, you know, your rehearsal hours are the same for a play that's a flop, and I've been in a few, uh, as as they are for plays that are successful, like we're fortunate to have Coal Country to have been. Eric Jensen and Jessica Blank, the co-creators of Coal Country, coming for one night only to my home state. I'm so excited to get back down there Monday, May 9th at Woodrow Wilson Auditorium. Uh, tickets are gone. They're hoping to, to get some more out there at the last minute, but right now, uh, it is the hottest ticket in the state of West Virginia for this year. We're going to talk about cool country. I do have to ask for all the authors who are listening and watching Zoom into Books and our Big Time Talker podcast, the difference and whether you enjoy one more than the other of sort of that solitary experience, and Jessica will throw this to you, of writing a book as opposed to this collaborative creative process where you've got, even on a play like Cold Country that has a relatively small staff of, of crew members and cast members, dozens of people you're dealing with. The book, it's just you. You make the decision. So is that better? Is it more satisfying? If you miss the people, Jessica, tell me. I mean, the last book I wrote, I was in the middle of my final revision and I posted on Facebook 
anybody who knows me, if I ever tell you I have an idea for a book ever again, please remind me to write it as a screenplay or a play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love books. I'm a bookworm. I adore them. I've written three novels. Eric and I wrote a nonfiction book together about the making of The Exonerated. Um but I am not a solitary person. My husband will tell you that. I am absolutely an extrovert and a collaborator, and I get the most excited about the creative process when I'm in a collaboration. I mean, most of our writing, except for the three books that I wrote by myself, is collaborative. We're writing partners, right? right? So um, it, I, I have much respect for the sit alone at the computer kind of real writers out there. I am not one of them. I I I I I'm very solitary. I am. Um, I I wrote a graphic novel uh, called The Reconcilers, which I'm extremely proud of. Uh, Neil Adams, who just died a couple of days ago, was the was the cover artist for it. Oh Legend. no! Yeah. I know Neil Adams. I'm an yeah. old comic book geek. Yeah, legendary oh. Batman artist, and just he yeah. changed the industry. He fought for creator rights. I mean, he and and I'll tell you just from having hung out with him quite a bit. As a mentor, as a as a fellow comics person, he was just the greatest guy in the world, you know. And he really it's exemplifies the kind of leader that I want to be when I'm when I'm approaching something. But I am more solitary than solitary than Jess. When we have to do a vomit draft of something, which is like a rough draft where you just spew it out, generally, generally speaking, I'll uh, I'll uh, do the first run through of something and just like write a hundred pages, and I'm quite happy doing that on my own. Um, until it's time to work with Jessica. And then we're talking about editing and reshaping and formatting and talking about all sorts of other stuff. And that's, that's equally exciting for me. But, you know, I'm more of a loner. You know, I spend a lot of time on my own planning Dungeons and Dragons games and stuff like that. Well, and then you lead them. Right. Yes. But so you're a wonderful collaborator, but I think in a, in a structured way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you guys, do you not ever get completely sick of one another i mean you work <laughs> together all the time you and want to take that one first babe um i don't yeah, think you I'll should Eric. That. i think that would be a bad move all <laughs> the way around <laughs> to quote star wars it's a trap right. uh, I mean, uh how do you do that how do you work together and live together you know how do you look at this beautiful woman next to you and not want to strangle her sometimes and throttle her when she's arguing with you. Or well, get you, really excited when she's all gussied up to go out for a night on the town because you're together 24-7. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, I mean, like, when she gets gussied up, it's hard not to get excited. Um, I, I will I will say that, um, that you know, I have a lot of friends. Uh, I have friends that I play games with. I have uh, my buddy Rachel that I play baseball with. Um, you know, I've got, um, I've got a daughter to raise. So I spend a lot of time with her, you know, I take my, my personal breaks with other people and, um, and also always make sure that I'm reading a book. And if, if I fulfill two to three hours of alone time or friend time, uh, in a day, uh, every day or two, I'm pretty good. That sets me up pretty well. And we don't have hardly, you know, most of our conflicts, we worked out writing together. Um, you know, we don't we don't fight about much um, because early on we were collaborating. And once you've written a play together, it's pretty hard to fight about stupid stuff like who took out the garbage. I mean, I also had we occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I also had an incident in the middle of in the middle of doing our play where I had a, a massive brain aneurysm and I almost died. And that even more than ever, that puts a ton of stuff in perspective about how fortunate I am to be here, how fortunate I am to be married to her. 
you know, I just don't sweat the small stuff anymore. And I hope that aspect of almost uh, kicking the bucket sticks with me because uh, because that's very important. What do you think, Jess, about being married and working together? She, she gets fed up with me. I mean, only occasionally. Yeah. I think you're very charming. Um, I, You know, we've been working together since we first started dating. We got the idea for our first play, The Exonerated, a month after we got together. So, and that was actually part of, we, and then we were engaged within three months because it w became immediately clear that we had work to do together, right? So we're compatible not only as a couple, but as creative partners. And that's been the case since the beginning of our relationship. So, I mean, does, it doesn't mean everything's in common. Like she doesn't really dig black and white movies. No, we're actually very different. We have very different tastes and our minds work in really different ways. They're just complementary. Did now does the fact that we collaborate well together and have learned to do so over 20 years mean that sometimes Eric doesn't have to be like, stop working. Don't talk to me about work anymore today. I'm tired. I'm hanging out with our kid, whatever. No, of course I, um, well, we're both kind of workaholics in different ways, A little bit, yeah. but you, you get hyper-focused on when you're creating. Right. I, I, I like, I like producing, right? And talking to people. So I can have conversations about work, like after hours for sure. And every once in a while, he has to be like, it's past business hours, honey. Cut it off, cut yeah. it off. Yeah. So, so what happens though, when you get down to the nitty gritty and you get macro on it, let's say Eric Jessica comes to you and you, you're writing Coal Country and mm. she's got something that she really wants in there. You really don't want it in there. Mm. Mm. How do you navigate through that with her? Well, you know, it's it's um, we got a rule about that. If it sticks around and it's a, a repeated concern, um, we had this on our play, The Exonerated. There was a there was a which is we traveled around the country and interviewed exonerated death row inmates and made a play out of their stories, out of their words. And um, when we were working on it, there was a, a, a wonderful monologue uh, that we kept trying to move around in the play because we felt it was super important. And the, the more we moved it around and the more we tried to include it, and it just stuck out like a sore, sore thumb. There was nothing wrong with it internally, dramatically. Uh, it was completely honest. It captured a, a color and an element that we certainly wanted in the play, but there was just no room for it. And, you know, the, the, uh, the, the phrase, uh, it's, it's a kind of brutal phrase, uh, but kill your darlings is part of, is part of uh, writing sometimes. And we just had to take that monologue and, and, and let it go and let it exist somewhere else. Um, but it eventually became clear to both of us that yeah. that needed to happen, right? And I think that's like, it, it hit a point where it was obvious. And I think that that's something that we have really developed over 20 years. We have very different sensibilities. The ideas that occur to us are very different from each other, but we've made enough work together that I think we really trust that we see what we want the end thing to be as the same right? The vision always matches. So there's trust that we're trying to get to the same thing, which gives us a lot of freedom along the way to be like, okay, you feel really strongly about trying this thing out. Let's try it out. You feel really strongly about like getting rid of this and seeing what that does. Let's try it because we know it'll all come out in the wash. We know that at the end, when we get to the final stages, we're going to be on the same page about is this working or not? Yeah. I mean, you know, Bill Gates or whomever created the undo function for for a reason uh edit undo is something we call all about the undo. Yeah. And save as. Save as. Save as. Yeah. 
All right. It's time to talk about coal country. Uh, and then you threw something in, Eric, and you kind of glossed over it. And it's a pretty big damn deal. You had a brain aneurysm and nearly died. And so I'm going to ask you, Jessica, to go back in your mind's eye. What do you remember about when you first heard that news? And what does that do to you, Jessica? Well, I, I, I want to I want to quote you. Okay. Um, and then I'm gonna. Yeah. Okay. Because we're married, we we interrupt each other. Um, the thing that she said that struck me the most is, um, you know, during the writing of Coal Country, which is based on a, a on a, 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 a an incident that happened in West Virginia at uh, uh, the UBB mine. Uh, where there was, we believe, uh, an avoidable explosion that uh, tragically killed 29 men. Uh, and then there was a 30th man who was terribly injured as well. And, um, and it ripped the heart out of the community. Um, I didn't understand what I was writing until, uh, until I lost my dad and my uncle within a month or two of each other. Um, uh, both to different things, uh, and um, and you know they were important to me, and I took that feeling that I was having, that grief that I was having, and I multiplied it by twenty nine families and friends, and I just couldn't bear it. Um, I didn't feel qualified to write Coal Country until that happened to me. Uh, Jessica said this thing about being in the theater and hearing the news, and she she said, "Well, I guess this qualifies me to." to write this play, you know, having me be at death's door. So I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that was a very striking experience that I had just a couple of days in. So, yeah, I mean, I was at rehearsal. So Eric and I, when, when we're um, making a play together, we write it together and then I direct it, but he's very involved in the, and we direct together on camera and he's very involved in the process with our plays. He'll, we'll be together in the room at the beginning Right. And then there's a couple of weeks where like the actors are refining their performances and the big choices have been made, but it's more about dropping the actors into the process. And then you go into tech where you make visual choices about the lights. So that in between space with the actors, when the big creative choices have been made, but before the visual choices are coming into play, Eric usually sits out for a couple of weeks and it was like, I think maybe the second day of that. And he was at home, thank God, on an appointment of, on Zoom with somebody. And I was in rehearsal and I got the call from the person he was on the Zoom with that he was unconscious um, and obviously left right away and ran to the hospital and was, I won't waste everybody's time with the next several hours, which were very scary but finally found out that he had had a brain bleed and he was transferred um, to Bellevue to the neuro ICU. Um, we knew uh, I had our stage manager run rehearsal the next day. <laughs> I didn't, I did not go to rehearsal the next day. Um, but we did thankfully know very quickly that he was going to be totally okay. Um, they have to keep you in the ICU for two weeks to, for safety after any kind of brain bleed, but he, woke up, he had all his faculties, he could talk, he could do everything, you know, he's, you see, he's fine. Um, and that was clear pretty quickly. So thankfully we didn't have to cancel the play or anything like that. Um, but I did the, my first or second day back in rehearsal, I was listening to the play, which is obviously, you know, a, a big part of it is about 
not knowing whether your loved one is going to survive, knowing that something terrible has happened and waiting to see what's going to happen to the person you love most in the world. And um, it was pretty gutting to listen to those words and that music, um, from especially from such an extraordinary group of actors who were bringing such truth to it. And Steve Earle. And Steve Earle. And I broke down in tears um, at the end of the rehearsal. And actually, I believe the first thing I said to the cast was, F you, <laughs> that's a compliment, <laughs> right? And then I said, yeah, I think actually I, I finally, I guess maybe I'm finally qualified to direct this play. Jessica Blake and Eric Jensen, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom in the books. They're the co-creators of Coal Country, which had a uh, an aborted run uh, off-Broadway because you opened, what, two weeks before COVID? Is that right? March 3rd, 2020. And you had to shut it down, what, the 13th, 14th? 11th. Wow. 11th was the last show. So, so Eric, did you kind of feel like uh, Charlie Brown when, you know, Lucy pulls the football away from Charlie Brown and it's, you know, you, you do all that work and then bam, it's all over. I don't know. Usually I'm Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The first thing I said was rats. Uh, No, the, 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 uh, the, I, I I felt, well, because we had 26 full performances. We had previews leading up to opening night. And the reviews that we got were just stunning and glowing and all of the sort of well, what theater people consider important outlets were completely, completely got what we were trying to do. And sometimes that's not always the case. Right. And, and, um, and you know, they were talking about an extension already. Tickets were going to sell out. Tickets were selling out. And, um, uh, you know, and everybody was scared but like the night one of the actors got sneezed on i was like this this i don't think this is going to continue um you know uh 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 fortunately because i felt covid coming we had a um it, it can't be broadcast or anything but we have a what do they call it a, an archival an archival version with you know a three camera archival performance we did it early which still exists which we can send to lincoln center or whatever so people can study it but but um but we, we had that, but, you know, plays, like Jessica says, often have a natural life. They have an ebb and a flow. They have an opening and then a middle and then a closing. And uh, the fact that all of these artists, you know, in, on stage and off who had worked to put this play together and the staff at the public theater put so much love into it, you know, um, and, you know, it was our Mount Rushmore to these 29 men and the and the uh, and that West Virginia community and and the fact that it couldn't it couldn't breathe a life that um it's it in in a way and again it's not the same i'm just using this as a metaphor in a way it feels like losing a small child that you've raised um uh uh, you know it's uh it's it's it it was gut-wrenching um but you know uh our concerns um, became more about survival a- after that. And then we pivoted and decided to do interviews, uh, decided not to let it get us down. And we decided to do interviews with frontline medical workers who were fighting COVID here in New York City um, on the question of what is a hero. 
Um, and uh, those interviews uh, turned into a, a play uh, called, digital uh, play uh, called The Line, and over 100,000 people watched it. So, I mean. And then by the time that was over, we were in talks with Audible to record an audio version of Coal Country, which we did during the pandemic, which then thankfully, when we got the chance to, when theater was getting the chance to exist again and to reopen, Audible was on board with Coal Country as a partner. So the public and Audible partnered to reopen the show at the Cherry Lane. So, you know, I grew up in West Virginia. I still have a lot of close family and friend ties there. I have clients back there. I get back there all the time. I, I vacation where I grew up. You know, I love that state. Um, I was very intimately uh, familiar with that story. How did you guys first hear about the Upper Big Branch mine disaster? Do you remember how you heard first and what got you interested in, in, in telling that story? Yeah, I mean, we saw it on the news. We, we saw it on the news and on the front page of the New York Times, I think with, you know, with the rest of the country as it was happening. And um, we were, at that point, we had just had a baby. So we weren't um, at a moment to embark on, the, the research process for this documentary theater work that we do is very intensive. And so we weren't at a moment where we could embark on, on a new project of that type at that moment. But we started talking about it then as like this, I mean, I don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about what we saw in the story just as it was unfolding? Well, yeah, and I Eric, mean, when you do talk about what documentary theater is for people that are not familiar with that. Okay, well, documentary theater basically is uh, not, not that different from a documentary film um, where you're uh, forming a story out of pre-existing words. Um, and pre-existing footage. Um, and uh, you're trying to tell a story and paint a picture using what people actually say and court documents and other sort of found items to, uh, to tell the story best. So, um, you know, we go in um, and uh, interview as many people as possible uh, related to the event. It was my first time to West Virginia, actually, when we went down with Steve Earl to do the, uh, to do the interviews. Um, and and um, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. Well, the... first he asked you to explain what documentary theater is, which yeah, you're doing. Yeah. And I remember the follow-up question when you get done with that answer. Uh, but but that's that's pretty much what it is in a nutshell. We What's record the... audio and we create our plays from the transcripts and then actors play the roles. So it's different from documentary film in that way because the roles are inhabited by actors, but the words are taken directly from people, what people say to us. But I, I've yeah. been, before I had asked you about when what we prompted. saw the un, the UBB story unfolding, what yeah. you saw in that story. Well, there were two things that I saw. One thing, both both things. Well, first of all, there were three things I saw. I saw the the. I come from a small town, like I said, and it occurred to me that any of these guys who died, as I saw pictures of them on the TV screen that loved ones were holding and stuff like that, that this could have been my uncle, my dad, guys I went to school with. Um, you know, I grew up, I grew up hunting with my grandmother and fishing and, and, you know, I could tell just from the, from the, and I've always admired and respected people who work for a living. You know, I had to work for a living to get through school, like doing manual labor and doing dangerous manual labor is one of the, is one of the hardest things in the world. So I had nothing but respect for these miners. And there were two layers of disrespect that I saw that really bothered me. One was the media coming in and talking down to people. I saw a lot of that. 
Um, and, and then leaving a few days later and completely forgetting about the story. It went down the memory hole, right? The second thing was, as time wore on, I saw that certain people and the powers that be, and I won't name names, but I think we all know who we're talking about, would not allow this community, community the dignity of their grief. And, um, you know, um, people were running for office, people were, you know, claiming innocence from, from anything having to do with the mine disaster. And it was just, it, it, it bothered me so much that, you know, I felt like there had to be a clapback. And, you know, the only way to do that is doing what I know how to do best. You know, I'm not really that good, you know, debating on Twitter or talking uh, with, with somebody on television. So um, these people were so out front about, about, you know, what they weren't responsible for. We decided to make a play about what real responsibility is. Well, and that line is in the play, right? Yeah. Um, Goose Stewart says in the play, he can buy all that airtime, I'm paraphrasing, and nobody knows except what he's putting up there, but I was there. And we felt like it was really important to create a platform for the folks who were there to get to tell their stories even after the cameras left and the national news media forgot and everybody went away because this is a community that we'll never forget and the country should never forget. There are lessons in the UBB disaster that America needs to learn. And we wanted to give a platform to the people who understand those lessons best. Not the least of which is that real leaders take responsibility when something goes awry. Very true, very well said. There certainly is, uh, and I don't want to give, uh, give away any, uh, anything in the play for the folks that haven't seen it yet. We'll see it Monday night when it comes to the county, by the way, that this mine disaster happened in. But there is a, a villain in this play. Uh, there's no question about it. And I wonder if, if you, either of you, had any concern at fleshing that uh, villain out into the uh, open and putting a spotlight squarely on that guy. No, we've got the same lawyers that the, the New York Times has in certain in terms of clearing things. So we're fine. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's that's the thing where we keep our side of the street squeaky clean. We're not talking about anything in the play that's not a fact. Right. And so we thankfully have freedom of speech in this country. And I believe that one of the reasons why that was written into the Constitution is as a check on unfettered power. And so we can call the powerful to account as citizens of this country. It is our duty to do that. And anybody who is powerful, who is afraid of being criticized, I think is un-American, right? If you, if you have power in this country, I think one should be open to talking about what it is that you do and being transparent. And when there's a lack of transparency, I believe it's a threat to our democracy. When you guys came into West Virginia, and I think Eric, you said it was your first time in the state. I'm not sure about you, Jessica, but what what surprised you when you sat down with the families of the survivors or, or the the minor uh, miners that, that made it out of there? What surprised you about those Raleigh County, West Virginia folks? Oh my goodness! Can I? Yeah, yeah. I well, love them I so mean, much. I mean, the first thing that surprised me was was how easily and quickly the gap that's been generated by the powers that be went away the second we sat down in their living rooms to talk with them. That's right. There's there's an artificial gap between red and blue 
that is created by people in whose best interest it is to keep making money around that gap. And, and that gap, that artificial gap, which may, which easily could have been exploited on Twitter or like whatever, Facebook, whatever you want to call it, um, that artificial gap went away because we were talking about meals with family. We were talking about love. We were talking about um, duty and uh, loyalty and universal living, truths, universal truths, living in community, uh, having uh, what it's like to, to have, have a kid, um, you know, and, and all of those things, that gap, there was a bridge across that gap. And, um, and it was simply, it simply involved us not coming in and imposing our idea of what the story was. It simply involved us coming in and saying, what do you think the story was of what happened? And then just listening. And the power of listening was, was certainly, uh, certainly brought home to me. Yeah, I'll just echo that. I mean, I think you said it beautifully. I, I did have a small learning curve at the very beginning um, that was, a, I don't know if it's about skepticism or skepticism of outsiders as much as it is, as it is just about how people do business, right? But I was doing some outreach to people for interviews who had said they wanted to talk to us through a mutual contact um, and not getting my calls returned, right? And I, I, I said at a certain point, I said, I think this is someplace where you have to share your face. And I, so I, I actually went down for Don Blankenship's sentencing and started talking to the families there. So there was that first moment where it's like, I, I, I think just people in West Virginia don't do as much business over email, right? Which is great. It's like, we want to actually talk to each other. No, we want to like have a conversation and know who you are, which is wonderful. And then, yeah, I will echo what Eric said. I was totally expecting once we got down there to sit down with people for people to be skeptical of us as a couple of artists from New York. Carpetbaggers. You know, yeah, right. and I've got like my thick black glasses and like whatever, right? Like there's these cultural differences and I expected folks to be skeptical of us. And the way in which we were welcomed into people's homes and their stories and their lives was just unbelievably moving and really, so important for me, like Eric is saying, to see see that these like artificial divides that keep getting ginned up on social media and by politicians, like most of them are a bunch of BS if you sit down and just have a real conversation across the table with someone. Yeah, I mean, it's an American story. It's a West Virginia story, certainly, but it's an American story. I mean, we're connected, uh, you know. The the, uh, the, uh, the West Virginians and West Virginia miners going back generations dug the coal that fired the steel in Pennsylvania that built New York City. Where there's little pieces of West Virginia all around us in the in the skyscrapers and the towers and the and buildings the that that and, the, and that make this city so uh, such a wonderful place to live. And um, and so we're connected and we owe West Virginia miners going back generations a debt of gratitude. It doesn't matter what side of the environmental thing you're on. You know, that's just a fact. Steve Earl, Steve Earl does some incredible music for the show. And, you know, he's uh, Copperhead Road is like a West Virginia national anthem. You know, they love <laughs> that song there. So the fact that he's involved in this play, how did that come to be? And, and what will folks who are not familiar with, with Cold Country's music and that great album he did around it goes to West Virginia, what will they, uh, what will they hear? 
Well, first they're going to hear Steve in person uh, playing, uh, sort of like the play Our Town. He kind of is a stage manager or a guide uh, musically through the play. So, Greek yeah, chorus, he, one man Greek chorus with oh, a scraggly He's a one man Greek chorus. That's right. And he and he so he performs the music that he wrote for the play live in the play as part of it. Um, you know, I think very early on, and I I believe it was Eric's idea. Um, it was because early. because of a Grateful Dead song. Okay. Yeah. We um. knew that this play <laughs> needed to have music. Right. right. And, you know, it gets called a musical. It's not exactly a musical. It's a play with music. Right. Um, but it's we knew that the music needed to be part of it. And it became I think at first when Eric suggested it, I'm like, huh, that's weird. How will a documentary play with music work? But as we started. But I started to show her Hazel Dickens right. and Doc Boggs and, you know, all these amazing like, you know, oh, yeah. people from Appalachia who made this incredible music. And right. And then I started to hear like we got deeper into the story and I was like, oh, this isn't just the story of what happened in the UBB disaster <clears throat> and what these families experienced around it. It is also the story of generational coal mining. It's also the story of the unionization of West Virginia and the deunionization of West Virginia. It's also the story of the land. And you can't get at all of that stuff in just one-on-one -on -one interviews with people, right? Without it turning into like a history lesson, which we didn't wanna do, right? We gotta keep the emotion of the story alive. So music can do all of that, right? Music can give us a wider canvas that's emotionally connected. So as soon as we realized, oh, this does have to have music, we, we knew Steve a little bit from our first project, The Exonerated. He had been involved in it and we immediately thought of Steve. And I am so, we brought the idea to him and he was on board right away. And I'm so glad he said yes, because we had no plan B. There wasn't like, <laughs> oh, we'll go to Steve. And then if he's not into it, we'll go to somebody else. Like it was, it had to be Steve. I cannot, having seen that play now, I can't imagine it without him now, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, those songs are such an integral part of it. Yeah. You guys have been very generous with your time today. I am uh, I'm thrilled beyond belief to have had just that much of the, an opportunity to, uh, to help bring coal country back to the state that I love so much. It's an important story that needs to be told. And you guys made that happen for our state. And so on behalf of West Virginia, I say thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for being here today. Well, thanks for having us. Every time I go back to West Virginia, I find something more to love about it. So I'm just looking forward to going back again. We'll uh, see you on the 9th. We'll see you there. Jessica, thanks, so thanks for everything. And thanks uh, so thank you for watching and listening to Zoom Into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C., shortly decamping to my home state of West Virginia. Thank you for being here. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.